Jerusalem. Uh, Muslims, Jews, Christians consider the city of Jerusalem a sacred place. And pilgrims from all around the world throughout the ages have made their way to what the ancient rabbis called the navel of the universe. Ancient Israelites made pilgrimage three times a year. Three times a year, all males had to appear before God in Jerusalem. And there was a group of psalms that was put together, kind of like our supplemental hymnal, uh, in order to sing along the way from wherever home was to Jerusalem. And those psalms all have in the title, uh, songs, the Song of Ascents, which we could translate uh, a song for pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And we're actually this fall doing a series on those psalms, 120 to 134, but we're not uh, going to look at all of them, just eight of them. Uh, The last time I was here, I think it was two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 121, which was a prayer for protection. And today we're going to look at part of Psalm 122, which is a prayer for peace. Now, you may have noticed when we were reading that psalm that after verse 2, there's some extra white space in your Bible. And after verse 5, there's some extra white space. And that's your editor's way of saying that this poem breaks up into three paragraphs, we might say. The psalm begins with joy over the arrival of ancient pilgrims in Jerusalem. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. They made it and they were overjoyed. Then the psalm celebrates the wonder of Jerusalem as the destination of pilgrims in verses 3 through 5. Jerusalem, built like a city that is closely compacted together. That's where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. See that pilgrimage motif? To praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There stand thrones for judgment the thrones of the house of David. And then verse 6 and uh, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9 are a final paragraph where the psalmist calls upon the pilgrims to pray. What we're looking at in these uh, psalms of ascent are various kinds of prayers that we offer up to God as we are making our pilgrimage to that final destination, the city of heaven. And so this final set of verses calls the pilgrims to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And what we want to do this morning in a few moments is to focus just on verses 6 through 9. And we'll mention a few things about what comes before. But our focus is just on those last verses, that prayer for peace. And I just want to ask the text three questions. And let's see how the text answers these three questions for us. So that we might have some guidance in praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And I can only imagine that in 
other churches this morning, if some other pastors were preaching on this text, the sermon might be quite a bit different than mine is going to be, but I think you love me anyhow. Okay, first question. How do we pray for Jerusalem? Does it mean praying for that city over there in the center of modern-day Israel? Is that what this psalm is really calling us to? How do we pray for Jerusalem? Let me show you two things from this psalm. First of all, Jerusalem as the house of the Lord. Sometimes what poets do to tell you where a poem starts and where a poem starts is they'll repeat something at the beginning and then the end. It's kind of like two slices of bread that hold the sandwich together. But in addition to this repetition, helping us know where things start and stop, it's also a way that poets help to focus our attention on something that's really important. And notice that we have this in verse 1 and, uh, and also near the end of the poem. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. That's why Jerusalem was so important, because the temple was there. Jerusalem was the location of the house of the Lord. Now, go to the uh, end of the poem, verse 9. For the sake of the house of the Lord, I will seek your prosperity. You get this repetition at the beginning, the house of the Lord, the end, the house of the Lord. The psalmist is focusing our attention on why Jerusalem is important. It was because that's where the house of the Lord was located. And the house of the Lord was a symbol of the presence of God. When pilgrims were making their way to Jerusalem, they weren't necessarily going there because it's the most beautiful scenery. They were going there because the house of the Lord was there and that was the symbol of the presence of God. They were marching toward the special presence of God. You might know, for example, that when Muslims pray, they pray wherever they are toward Mecca. Well, ancient Jews prayed toward Jerusalem. Remember Daniel when he was in the Babylonian captivity? He prayed three times a day looking out the window, the window that faced Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where the special presence of God was located. And so Jerusalem was special because it was the place where the presence of God was located. It wasn't special in and of itself. It was special because of the special presence of God. And Jerusalem, therefore, was an ancient symbol of Christ and His church. Of course, you're familiar with the idea that the Ancient sacrifices were pictures of Christ, yes? The priesthood was a symbol of Christ, yes? The ancient king was a symbol of Christ as king. The ancient prophets were symbols of Christ as prophets. Everything in the Old Testament was an anticipation of the coming of Christ, and the temple was the same thing. Now we think, wow, they had a really cool temple. It was a real temple made out of wood and stone. But the book of Hebrews tells us it wasn't the real temple. 
It was only a shadow. It was an image. It was a symbol of something that really is real. It was a symbol of the reality of who Christ is. That's why at one point, Jesus, when he was talking to people in his day, said to them, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And they said, what are you nuts? It took our fathers 40 years to build this temple and you by yourself are going to do it in three days. But they didn't understand that he was talking about the body, his body. Or remember at the beginning of the Gospel of John when the Bible says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, that that Greek word for dwell is related to the Greek word for tabernacle. So although it sounds kind of weird, we could translate it, the word became flesh and he tabernacled, he templed among us. The temple was a picture of Christ because where, we confessed it today, where is the special presence of God most poignantly displayed in creation? It's in Christ, because Christ incomprehensibly is both creation and creator, isn't he? He takes on human flesh. He becomes part of the creation, but he's the creator God. Where does God manifest his presence most keenly and most poignantly? It's in the Son of God become flesh. It's in Christ. And so the temple is a picture of Christ. Jerusalem was special because God's presence was there. And God's presence now is not in a temple. The temple's been destroyed. Well, where is God's presence? It's specially located in Christ. But then you have to remember that Christ is specially connected to you, the church. That's why both Paul and Peter will speak of the church in language like, Living stones being built up into a holy temple to God. And um, that's why Paul will say, whoever destroys the temple has got to deal with God. Now, when I was growing up, that was always the key text that was used for not smoking. (laughs) When a preacher wanted to preach against smoking, that's the text he went to all the time. Because if you destroy the temple... Now, there are places where Paul does say, you as individual believers are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But in that text, the temple is not you individual, the temple is you corporate. If anybody destroys the corporate church of God, he's got God to deal with. So you see, Christ is that special presence of God. And because you are mystically united to Christ by grace through faith, you are the temple of God. You're Jerusalem. And so how do we pray for Jerusalem? I would submit to you first and foremost, praying for the peace of Jerusalem is not what many people would suggest this morning if they were preaching on this sermon, and it means praying for peace in the Middle East in that city, Jerusalem. It means praying through the peace of the special presence of God located in Christ in His church. The church that He lived for. The church that He died for. The church that He was raised for. 
the church that he ascended into heaven to pray for, the church that he's coming back to bring to glory, praying for the peace of Jerusalem. How do you do it? Along the way, you pray for the church. The special presence of God. Now this matter of praying for Jerusalem in the Middle East, hold on to that thought, I want to come back to it. How do we pray for Jerusalem? By praying for the house of the Lord, which is the church, united to Christ. Now, what do we pray for Jerusalem? You know I love Hebrew, so i got to teach you three Hebrew words. Because there are three things that the psalmist says pray for. Here's the first and real easy one, shalom. Everybody say shalom. Okay, in this prayer, shalom occurs three times. It must be an important concept. Remember, your teacher taught you to vary your vocabulary so what you write isn't boring. Hebrew teachers taught their kids to repeat their vocabulary so that people would get the point. And in these couple of verses, the word shalom occurs three times. Um, Notice that the psalmist says, Pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. Uh, May there be shalom within your walls. I will say, shalom be with you. Three times we get this idea of shalom. And as I've said before in other contexts, shalom means wholeness. Wholeness in every area of life. Shalom is what we experienced in the garden before the fall. Shalom is what we will experience when Jesus comes again and brings the kingdom in its consummation form. Shalom will be wholeness in our bodies, nothing broken. Shalom will be wholeness in our relationships, no relationships broken. Shalom will be wholeness in our minds, uh, no dementia like uh, my father experienced. I had a wonderful opportunity to visit with a former colleague. His son brought him to visit uh, on Friday. And healthy, strong, vigorous, cheerful, delightful to chat with. And his son said, as soon as we leave, he won't remember a thing that just took place. Not so. That's not shalom. Wholeness in your finances. Nobody's going to be broke. And the psalmist says, pray for this kind of wholeness. You know, the the church as it exists today is made up of broken, isn't it? There are plenty of people in the church who are broke. There are people whose relationships are broken. There are families where relationships are broken. There are people who are in emotional states that are broken. There are people who have bodies that are broken in one way or another. Pray for the shalom of the church. Not only that we will experience that shalom in perfect form in the future, but that we might experience it more and more along the journey's path now. After all, Jesus did say, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. How do we pray for Jerusalem? We pray for shalom. Okay, here's your second Hebrew word. Shalwa. Everybody say shalwa. 
Now, see, if this were English, we would say shalwah, because we tend to accent stuff up front, but Hebrew accents stuff on the last syllable. So we say shalwah. Now, shalwah occurs twice in this text. In verse 6, it says, may those who love you be secure. Shalwah. And then it says, may there be shalom within your walls and shalwah within your citadels. This word is repeated not three times, but twice. The NIV translates it security. The sense of this word is ease, quiet, rest, peace in that sense, tranquility. The word kind of presumes a certain level of all is well. That all is not only well with your body, your mind, your spirit, your finances, but all is well with your soul. That's shalwah. No turmoil. Ironic that the church for which Christ lived and died can be a place of turmoil. That's not the way it's supposed to be, but that's often the way it is. Uh, In a congregation of this size, and you might not think that you're a large congregation, there are smaller ones out there. In a congregation of this size, there's got to be some turmoil this morning. Some of you have your insides are in turmoil. Some of you have relations that are in turmoil. Some of you might have turmoil because there are bills to pay and you don't see where the income is coming from. Uh, Maybe there's turmoil within the body of Christ here in one way or another. Maybe, I don't know, nobody said anything to me, so I'm not speaking for anybody here. Maybe there's a little bit of turmoil in some of your hearts because I'm here this morning and there's not a pastor that's been called yet. Ought not to be. The church of Christ ought to be a place of rest, of tranquility, of ease. Pray for the shalom of the church. Pray for the shalwah, the ease, the quiet, the rest of the church. One more word. You may have gotten this one before me from from me in the past. Everybody say tov. Tove is just a good old garden variety word for good. It's the word that my NIV translates at the very end of the verse. I will seek your good. I will seek your tove. I will seek your prosperity. Now, the English word good means a lot of different things. If I say he's a good man, I mean he, he does good things. He's good in a moral sense. But if I say that's a good steak, I'm not commenting on the moral qualities of the steak. I'm saying that really tastes good. It's pleasing to the palate. If I say that's a good golf club, I'm not saying it's pleasing to the palate or that it's morally upright. I'm saying that club does what it's supposed to, it does what it's designed to do. Good means all sorts of things in English, and so does good in the Hebrew Bible. For example, the book of Proverbs says, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children, 
which means if you should happen to have an RV that has the bumper sticker that says, I'm spending my children's inheritance, please remove the bumper sticker. (laughs) Because the Bible says a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Um, I don't know if if any of you watch Steve Harvey. I, I happen to think he's quite entertaining and he's an interesting character. But I, he was on the Steve Harvey show. He had his family on a, a while back. And he, was, he pointed to his, his family, his extended family, and he says, this is why I work. He said, I'm not working to make this money for me. He said, I'm, I'm, this, is why, this is what my life is all about, passing it on to my children and my children's children. Uh, I don't know Steve Harvey well, but I know that that's what the Bible calls a good man. Good in that sense. Um, The Bible also in Genesis says uh, God saw that it was good. Now, he's not saying that those days were morally upright. He was saying that each of those things that God created was like a good golf club. It was suitable for doing exactly what he designed it to do. So he created the sun to light the day. He created the moon to light the night. He created the sun and the moon so we could have things like calendars. And he said, good, they're going to do just what I wanted them to do. But the word good can also mean prosperity. And certainly in the context of shalom and shalwa, that's what the word means here. Uh, As is the case, for example, in Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 17. Let's just take a... A quick look at that. Zechariah 1.17. Again, I'm reading the NIV. God says, Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with good. But the NIV says, My towns will overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. How do we pray for Jerusalem? By praying for the church of Christ. What do we pray for Jerusalem? For shalom in the church. For wholeness. For shalwa in the church. For quiet and for rest and for ease and for tov. For prosperity in the church. Now, one more question. Why do we pray for Jerusalem? And uh, we don't have to guess. The text gives us two reasons. Look at, got to go back there to Psalm 122. Look at verse 8. For the sake of my family and friends. Or I think as some of your translations say, for brothers and companions. But the brothers aren't just guys, they're also gals, and so family is better. And companions is okay, but friends is the way we normally speak. The NIV captures it well. For the sake of family and friends, I will say, peace be within you. See, you're not praying these things only for yourself. You are. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with you praying for yourself that you would experience shalom, shalwa, and tov. That's a good thing. And in addition to that, you have to ask, 
Why am I praying for these things for myself? And it's not only, it is for you, but it's not only for you. It's also for those who are around you. It's for family and it's for friends. See, not just self, but also neighbor. The Bible never denigrates the individual self. The Bible doesn't dismiss you as unimportant. When I'm teaching, for example, staff training for Campus Crusade, I will often ask Crusade staff this question, why has God blessed you? And the first answer that always comes back is, God has blessed me so that I can bless others. And I say, true, but you missed something. Because Paul says to young Timothy, teach those who are rich in this world not to put their hope in riches which are so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly gives us everything for our enjoyment. You can't skip over that. The Bible doesn't, so why should we? One of the reasons why God blesses you is so that you can enjoy those blessings without feeling guilty. When I was a young pastor, my mother sent me a book called How to Relax Without Feeling Guilty. (laughs) I I think she was trying to send me a subtle message of some sort. Well, there should be another book called How to Enjoy God's Blessings Without Feeling Guilty because other people don't have as many as we do. Paul says, teach those who are rich in this world not to put their hope in those riches which are so uncertain but to put their hope in God who richly gives us everything for our enjoyment. And then he goes on to say, and teach them to be generous and willing to share. So which is it? Is it for you or is it for them? Yes, thank you. It's for both. See, not just self, but also neighbor. Why do we pray for Jerusalem? Because we love our family and our friends. We love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so not only do we want to experience shalom and shalwa and tov, but we want others to experience it as well. We do not have an economic theory that is based on scarcity. If I have it, then somebody else won't. We have an economic theory based on abundance. Our Heavenly Father owns the cattle on a thousand hills and He's got enough for me and enough for you and enough for everybody else as well if we do it His way. But not only do we pray for the sake of family and friends, we also pray for the sake of the house of the Lord. Look at the last verse. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek your prosperity. Remember that lovely Psalm 23, the Lord as our shepherd, providing us with all the necessities of life and the abundance of life. And and why does it tell us he does that? For his name's sake. You see, it's not just about you. It's not just about neighbor. It's also about God. We pray for shalom and shalwa and tov, because we are people who are concerned for the glory of God. And he has said that in this I am glorified. 
Will God be ultimately glorified in heaven when all of his people experience perfect shalom and shalom and tov? You better believe it. If that weren't the case, he wouldn't have done it that way. And so if he will be ultimately glorified in that then, he will also be glorified in our anticipatory experience of it as we're making our pilgrimage in the here and now to that celestial city. Praying for peace simply because you love God and you love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, Let's conclude by just looking very briefly at two texts in the New Testament. Because some of you might be saying, sounds pretty good for that Old Testamentish kind of stuff, but isn't the New Testament really different on these kinds of things? Well, let's turn first of all to 1 Timothy 2. First Timothy 2, starting in verse 1. Now, this is Paul. This is Paul saying, this is the first thing I want you all to do. The first thing that I want you to do, the thir- first thing that I want to urge upon you are petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving being made for all people. Well, who do you mean, Paul? For kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, I started by saying that praying for the peace of Jerusalem doesn't mean praying for peace in the Middle East in that particular city. Now, what I want to do is tell you that's what it includes. See, you you are to pray, not just for Jerusalem, but around the world, for cities that God has put on your heart. Maybe it's Jerusalem. Praying for the leadership. Arab leadership, Israeli leadership. But in particular, why are you praying that? Because the house of God is there. The church of Christ is there. And of course, we know that uh, there, are, there are plenty of Christian churches in Israel where those who were raised as Jews have converted to the faith. And you see... We not only pray for our government, but we pray for that government that those believers might live peaceful and that they might experience shalom and shalwa and tov. But we also remember the Palestinians, the forgotten Christians. You see, those brothers and sisters living as Palestinians that nobody likes. Israel doesn't like them because they're Arabs. Arabs don't like them because they're Christians and not Muslims. Talk about falling through the cracks. Our Palestinian brothers and sisters. You see, pray that they too might have governing structures over them that would provide them ample opportunity to experience shalom and shalwa and tov. 
Because that's why they were created. And that's why Jesus came. That's why he lived a perfect life of righteousness and died on the cross and was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. And that's what he's praying for. And that's why he's coming again for them. And for the whole church scattered throughout the world. So while this text does first and foremost tell us to pray for the church of Christ, it gives us a broad perspective on what that means. As we read it, as apparently Paul did, when Paul, perhaps with an eye on Psalm 122, says, pray for kings and all those in authority that the church of Christ may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved. Well, one more verse. It comes from that book that we probably don't turn to very often, Third John. What a great book. You, there's only one chapter. Where else can you, like in five minutes, say, hey, I just read a whole book of the Bible? Third John. It starts by saying, the elder, that's John, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. Now, I'm reading the New American Standard Version here, and if any of you have that in front of you, you track with me word for word. I've looked at this verse in Greek. I've looked at it in all modern translations. And in my humble estimation, the New American Standard translates this text better than any other translation there is. I pray that in, notice, all respects... Because God created every area of your life. Nothing is to be left out. I pray that in all respects you may prosper. That you may get along well on your journey. And be in good health. Just as your soul prospers. Don't you love the balance of the Bible? We tend to go like one way or another. We're we're all about the soul and we neglect the body. Or we're all about the body, and we neglect the soul. And John says, you're a whole person. Gaius, I just trust that God will give you wholeness in every area of your life. And that, my beloved, is what I pray for you. That in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as I know your souls prosper. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path as we continue our pilgrimage toward Jerusalem, the fullness of your design for your creation and your people. And we just do pray that you would bless us and the house of the Lord throughout the world with shalom, and with Shalwa, and with Tov, for our good, for the good of our neighbor, for your glory, now and forevermore. Amen.